My dear Mrs. Dabrogin. Yes? Nikolai is coming home. He's coming home at last. What do you mean, at last? Do you think it was his choice to stay away? No, of course not. I mean, I meant until now. Well... He isn't the first good man to be put under suspicion, as they say. You should know all about that, Mr. Verkovyensky. He is a young idealist. I was a young idealist. I still am, at heart. Are you going to sit down like a rational creature? What's wrong? You're not as happy as I thought you'd be. How did you hear the news about Nikolai? Gossip, I suppose. The town is full of it. And the governor's wife is the worst gossip of them all. Everyone is saying it's marvellous he's coming home. Just what this dull, dead backwater needs. Fresh blood. That's a rather unpleasant expression, isn't it, when you come to think of it? Idiots. Fresh thinking. That's better. He has been everywhere in Europe. He will have all the latest ideas, the latest insights. He was such a lovely boy. I am proud to think that, in my small way, as a tutor, I imparted some of my Sit own... Sit down, deep... will you? In the ninth season of this podcast... We'll be exploring some great writers and works of literature that have been requested by you, the listeners. So, well, who's coming up? Well, Nietzsche said of him that he was the only psychologist from whom he had anything to learn. Einstein said of him that he gave him more to think about than any scientist. Joseph Conrad thought, well, that he was just too Russian for him. And Tolstoy thought his stories were filled with too many alcoholics and paranoiacs. But, like him or hate him, there's just no way you can dismiss this great-souled writer. This is The Wisdom Of, and this is Episode 2, Dostoevsky's The Possessed. talked a lot uh, more off mic than on about writers like uh, Albert Camus, writers who, if you look at it, are hammering away at a single theme, coming at it from a different point of view, like the absurdity of existence through the finite, the, the eternal, the individual, but also the collective in so many different novels. There are tons of examples. I could bring up uh, Stanley Kubrick again, same kind of thing doing haunted house movies and bizarre scenes from a marriage movies, but they're all focusing on the same kind of thing. I used to think writers had to craft totally new, totally unique tales with each one, its own different theme onto itself with each endeavor. But as I get older, maybe I'm somewhat, I don't know, a little bit completely wrong about that. Don't know why I brought this up, because here we have Dostoevsky with a story about a character under the modern influence of liberalism and Western thought, tossing him into a world of depraved immorality. Yes, we are finally doing crime and punishment. No, wait, we're doing 
Well, I'm told we're doing Brothers Karamazov. Oh, we're actually doing demons? Possessed? The devils? The demons. The possessed. Uh, yeah, let, let's go with the title The Possessed for now. But I will get into the various translations of the title later. And I do think you're right to say that all of Dostoevsky's novels show a kind of family resemblance, that he's often running through the same themes. Anyway, first things first. So here's the all-important brief summary. So The Possessed is a novel written by the Russian writer Dostoevsky, and it was first published in 1871. It's a story concerned with the the catastrophic consequences of the political and moral nihilism that were becoming prevalent in Russia in the 1860s. The story was actually inspired by a a real-life event, the murder of a member of a secret revolutionary group who was killed by the leader of that group. Many commentators have remarked on the prophetic nature of the possessed. That's to say, Dostoevsky knew that communism would conquer Russia, and that this would be something like the very opposite of the kingdom of heaven. The Possessed is one of Dostoevsky's four masterworks, two of which we've already tackled in earlier episodes of this podcast, namely Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. Thinking about the sitcoms that were all over the place on TV. Maybe they still are. I don't know. But I'm thinking about the trope of the dopey dad. Like, you know, we all know the example. Mom didn't have time to make the kids lunch, so dad had to do it. And it's just a simple uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But through, through his fumbling and bumbling, he accidentally makes anthrax. But just before everyone is about to inhale and turn their lungs into fire, mom sweeps in with the, the hand vac and vacuums it all up, saves the day. If you remove any attempts at, I don't know, any kind of yucks and replace it with absolutely crushing pathos, we get Stepan, a truly awful dad who gets mothered as much as anyone in this novel. Anthrax. Yikes. I must have missed those episodes. But yeah, Stepan, that incompetent dad. So what's going on with him? What's his significance in the novel? Well, it's huge. Okay, so the general idea of the possessed is that the ill-conceived liberalism of the 1840s generation actually gave birth to the nihilistic views of the 1860s. Now, Dostoevsky uses, well, the older Stepan as representative of the 1840s generation and their liberalism. A liberalism which emphasizes things like socialism, progress, Western intellectualism, and atheism. And Dostoevsky uses, among others, Stepan's son Pyotr and his student Nikolai Stavrogin as representatives of the generation of nihilists of the 1860s. So again, what Dostoevsky does here is he portrays the the liberal Stepan as the intellectual and biological father of nihilism. That is, he's the parent of the most physically destructive nihilist in the story, Pyotr, and the teacher of the most psychologically destructive character, Nikolai. Now, the question is, how the heck did this happen? How did Stepan 
and his liberalism turn the next generation in this catastrophic direction? Well, there are many reasons, but probably the most important is this. Stepan sent away his son, Piotr, at an early age. And Nikolai? Well, his father died when he was a child. Now, what happens to children that get abandoned like this? Well, there's no authority figure for them, and so nothing for the child to have to respect, and nothing to follow in the footsteps of. Such an absence of authority and physical bonding is a breeding ground for fastening on to all sorts of dangerous bonds and father substitutes in the future, no? But for Dostoevsky, it's not just the absence of a father figure that causes problems for the next generation. It's the absence of, well, pretty much everything, including familial, cultural, and religious ties. Actually, I think you could argue that this is a story that centers around absence. The, the younger generation grew up without any roots because the older generation, including Stepan, dismissed them or intellectualized them away in favor of science, progress, and Western and European thinking. So, Piotr and Nikolai grew up without or were denied a connection to their Russian heritage and family. Again, they grew up rootless. And it's this lack of native roots, this lack of homeland or connection to the soil, that makes them such easy targets for foreign and nihilistic ideologies. Absence breeds nihilism. Okay, so what else? What are some other reasons why it is the older Stepan is responsible for the nihilism and destructiveness of the next generation? Well, here's one. Stepan is intellectually superficial, muddled, and inauthentic. Yeah, he, he clearly thinks of himself as an intellectual and academic. But really, as we're told, he did very little as a scholar. Actually, nothing at all. He's sort of a phony and a showy intellectual. You know, the kind that throws out French words here and there because he wants to impress people. Now, there's something dangerous and irresponsible about people who just carelessly throw ideas out without fully thinking them through or without being able to live them themselves. There's a, there's a dishonesty and a cowardice there. Stepan's irresponsible in this way because he pretends to extol wisdom, you know, uh, bits of gems he's memorized from the library, but which he has no real clue about. He doesn't really know anything about the real world. In this way, he's a very dangerous teacher because he says a lot, expresses a lot of liberal ideas and political moral ideas and so on, but without really understanding their consequences and without at all understanding the real world around him. And he's not even held to account by what he says. And that's no surprise because he doesn't live in a big city with genuine academics where he'd have to um, accept responsibility for what he says. Rather, he lives in a small rural town where, because of this, he's perceived as someone substantial. So he can get away with it. He can throw liberal ideas around, you know, like the, the undermining of religion and nationality, 
or um, reductive and materialistic philosophies, or um, pie-in-the-sky ideas of radical political reform. And he can implant these into the minds of young people, all without thinking about either the coherency of such ideas or their possible consequences or manifestations in real life. And, of course, what happens is that his muddled ideas do actually get released out into the world, where they get implanted into young, susceptible minds, into the minds of people who, in their youthful vitality and resoluteness, go on to give concrete, practical life to them, where the real-life consequences are nothing but, well, disastrous. Stepan was just an idealist and a blatherer. But in his immaturity and irresponsibility, he didn't realize that his son and his student, real men of action, would make real, bloody real, his ideological fantasies. Now, all this is the sort of stuff that happens, Dostoevsky seems to be suggesting, when, like I mentioned earlier, there's no longer any respect paid to authority, religion, and tradition. I mean, when people are taught that there is no God, and that there is no native soil from which they sprang, then that licenses not only a sense that they themselves are the real gods, but also the belief that there is nothing sacred or meaningful about tradition or native soils. Now, from here, the next step is obvious. They will complete the Tower of Babel, destroy the kingdom of God, and go on to demolish the old, and then recreate society along their own reductively scientific and ideological lines. This is what happens when, like Stepan does, people in positions of power convey simplified images of the world. What happens is that that gets taken in by young minds and teaches them to only see things in black and white. It teaches them to be, well, lousy and dogmatic interpreters of the world. It teaches them that all problems can be solved through ideological mechanisms. Anyway, um, Stepin, on his deathbed, finally admits to himself what he's known all along. That, well, he's been inauthentic and a liar. He says, quote, I've been lying all my life, even when I was telling the truth. I never spoke the truth, but only for myself. The worst of it is that I believe myself when I lie. End of quote. Now, to be pretentious and a liar to oneself obviously isn't good. But what makes it so much worse is when there's someone else nearby listening to you and taking seriously what they hear. It's then that your flippancy, hypocrisy, and lack of intellectual integrity goes on to do the real damage. This book has some nasty, nasty characters in it, not the least of which is our next uh, Nikolai Stavrogin. Instead of listing out all of his, I don't know, heinous acts, I kind of just feel like punting on this one. 
my absolute favorite comedian of all time, Norm MacDonald, just passed away. I even told or neutered slash butchered one of his jokes in an earlier episode of the podcast. And, you know, he had a famous joke. It was It's called the moth joke. And if you use the internet, use it for one of its few redeeming qualities. Look up, watch this joke, Norm MacDonald, the moth joke. It has a bit of a Russian tinge to it. You know, to be honest, probably not Dostoevsky inspired, but a Russian tinge nonetheless. So listen to this, have a laugh. I'm going to do likewise, and I'm just going to let you just completely take over. Tell us about this guy, Nikolai. Yeah, rest in peace, Norm MacDonald. And yeah, you're right. Check out that joke. Anyway, as usual, let me try to bring things back to point. So you asked about the infamous Nikolai character. Okay, well, Nikolai Stavrogin is the real true prince of darkness for Dostoevsky. I mean, I would say that nobody in all of Dostoevsky's novels comes as close to pure evil as him, as close to what we would today call a psychopath, someone who, you know, acts without remorse. I mean, The underground man wasn't altogether admirable, right? But for all his destructiveness, at least he promoted freedom. And the later Raskilnikov from Crime and Punishment isn't great either. I mean, he goes further and takes that freedom to transgress and step over societal boundaries. But at least he eventually repents and undergoes a transformation. But Nikolai, in The Possessed, He just violates all possible boundaries. Not only does he care so little about things that he's willing to destroy others, but he's willing to destroy himself as well. Not many of Dostoevsky's revolutionaries are willing to go that far, right? So again, what happened here? How did Nikolai become this way? Well, again, it goes back to being deprived of a father growing up but also to his teacher, Stepan. Both Stepan's character and his teaching and ideas, as I mentioned earlier, are not earnest. They have no connection to a homeland, and they definitely don't show any appreciation for the sacred. Stepan's pseudo-intellectualization and his materialistic and reductive views lend themselves to a kind of disenchantment of the world to a defilement of the holy. Well, is it any wonder then that his student, Nikolai, comes to embody this rootless, emotionless, detached and empty nature? That he becomes, well, a real nihilist, as someone who, simply because they're bored, thinks of the people in his life as objects to be manipulated and experimented on. In a way, too, Stepan and Nikolai suffer from what Nietzsche talked quite a bit about, the implications of the death of God. That is, they get rid of all religion, but fail to replace that loss with any new values. Actually, it's, it's worse for Nikolai. He just can't see how any notion of good and evil could exist at all. And this is what's so dangerous about these so-called revolutionaries like Stepan and, more so, Nikolai. They're eager to tear everything down for the purpose of social reform, 
but they don't really have any idea of what to replace it with. And maybe most importantly, because of their ideological blinders and their nihilism, they have no gratitude and appreciation for what is already good and beautiful in the world, something Dostoevsky is always trying to remind us of. In other words, in their ideological fervor, they're willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Ultimately, Nikolai's complete disconnection from the realm of the holy blinds him to life itself. I'm almost certain you're going to talk about ideologies in a really serious, deep way uh, about the dangers of them. So I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to focus on, I don't know, the more mundane dangers of ideologies, boredom, tedium. You know, have you ever been sitting at a bar trying to enjoy a beer and you're sitting next to a guy or gal who has an ideology? I'm about ready to take a sip of my beer. I have a taco in front of me I'm about to eat. And they jump in saying, oh, you shouldn't be eating that taco. You're not of Latin X descent. And as I'm mumbling, Duh, I, th- I thought your name was Kelsey. They say, don't worry about it. If you have four hours, I can correct you. So does it get worse than having my beer ruined? Yeah, that, that is annoying to be sure. Yeah, it can get a little worse than that. Okay, so um, how do I start this? Well, I guess, I guess The Possessed is a novel which gets us to see just how animated we can become when we're under the spell of ideas. To what extent ideas can inhabit us and drive us. Maybe more specifically, The Possessed deals with the nature and, like you said, the dangers of ideology. So, first of all, how does Dostoevsky understand ideology? Well, at a more basic or generic level, ideology is typically defined as a set of ideas or beliefs that determine one's behavior. And defined like this, I think you could argue that ideologies are, well, necessary for us. I mean, we simply cannot do without them because we can't act without making sense of the worlds that we inhabit, right? But though Dostoevsky would say that they clearly do determine behavior or action, that's not all ideologies are for him. No, for for him, those under the grip of an ideology are beyond the scope of reason. I mean, in a normal, everyday, rational dialogue, most of us can be persuaded away from our ideas with evidence and arguments, right? That's not the case with those under the grip of ideologies. And that's because their views, though masquerading as reason, are actually rooted in, well, faith. Um, Maybe another way of putting this, certainly Dostoevsky seems to think this, is that ideology is a kind of reverence towards ideas. It's a kind of religiosity. A substitute religion. That's why... Ideologues, like the younger Piotr and uh, Nikolai, act with a kind of certainty and dogmatism, despite only really having faint outlines of a view. It's all about action, not justification. 
Now, this point about dogmatism should be emphasized, I think, and elaborated on. What I mean here is that the ideologue's certainty and their rigidity of thinking is actually the result of the fact that the ideology they hold to is, well, in possession of their thinking. They don't think their view. Their view thinks them. I mean, one pretty obvious characteristic of someone holding to an ideology is this. You can pretty much predict what they're going to say on any issue, right? Given any set of circumstances, an ideologue will provide a so-called correct response. And so, it's really the ideology, the, the program that's being run, rather than the individual that does the thinking here. In this sense, ideological thought is the, is the opposite of humility and genuine searching. That's to say, ideology, in its complete form, provides the answers to all political and moral questions, and allows for no variance. This is why it's nearly impossible to argue with a true ideologue. Any new or conflicting information is either, well, rejected by them, or reinterpreted or refitted within their ideological schema. Anyway, for for Dostoevsky, what ideology is, at the end of the day, is, well, a kind of virus or parasite. It's an intellectual infection. Actually, we're using the title translation, The Possessed, but it's also been translated, as you mentioned earlier, as demons and also as the devils. And this is important because what Dostoevsky meant by demons or devils were not the characters in the novel, but the ideas which infected them and through which they, the characters, become merely their carriers. I mean, this is why the most naive and innocent people can end up destroying in the name of some greater cause, because their minds have been hijacked. Anyway, we we know that he had this identification of ideas as demons and parasites because of the epigraph to the novel that he uses. It's a passage from Luke, known as the miracle of the Gadarene swine. It's, of course, where Jesus exorcises the demons from out of man and into a herd of swine, where the swine then rush down a steep bank into a lake and drown themselves. Again, this is how Dostoevsky understands ideologies. They're demons that possess their hosts. The unfortunate thing about demons, though, is that they just can't drown, and they just don't die. They may stay dormant for a while, but just know that they'll be back to find other hosts. Hosts who will involuntarily suffer the spiritual malady and intellectual contamination that is ideological thinking, where in their striving for the absolute and their urge towards simplification, they will eventually, like the biblical herd of swine, rush off the cliff towards annihilation, taking the rest of us along with them.
listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode, Hamlet. Hamlet.